Hi everyone and welcome to our latest Risk and Regulation Rundown podcast. I'm Andrew Strange, your regular host, and as last month we're recording this remotely, so please note that it might impact the sound quality. In today's episode, we're discussing the regulatory landscape for insurers, from the impact of climate change to upcoming changes to the prudential rules. I'm delighted to be joined by Rod Bryn Hussey, a director in our insurance risk and regulation practice, and Anna Van Chowdhury, a senior manager in our regulatory insights team. Insurers are facing a packed regulatory agenda at the moment, dealing with the challenges ranging from the impact of COVID-19 to the end of our Brexit transition period. They're also facing some important societal shifts too, such as responding to climate change. So Rod, would you be able to kick off by setting the scene on the climate change agenda? Andrew, yeah, sure. Um, but whilst climate change is not a new phenomena, uh, the past five or 10 years have seen you know, an extensive amount of policy actions to tackle this issue. A good place to start is the Paris Agreement within the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Signed in 2015, um, 196 signatories have committed to three key aims. The first one is holding the increase in global average temperature to well below two degrees above pre-industrial levels. And so we can push this further by pursuing efforts to limit the temperature increase to 1.5, recognising that this would significantly reduce the risks and impacts of climate change. The second is about increasing the ability to adapt to the adverse impacts of climate change and foster climate resilience and low greenhouse gas emissions development in a manner that does not threaten food production. And finally, making finance flows consistent with a pathway towards low greenhouse gas emissions and climate resilient development. So COP26, um, which is a convention looking at climate change, it was due to be held this year, but unfortunately it's become a victim of coronavirus. This conference uh, is intended to bring the signatories together in order to speed up the action against climate change. It also acts as a five-year review point for progress. But this year, each nation has agreed to devise a plan to cut their carbon emissions by the next conference. Thanks, Rod. Uh, I think a lot of those themes will be familiar to our listeners, both on a personal and a business level. Uh, I can Indeed, I can think of PwC's own commitment to net zero, for example. But, but how does that translate into regulatory expectations or indeed rules for firms? And, and what actions do they need to take to comply? So, so for insurers, regulatory communications and discussions have been happening over the past 18 months, really. The PRA released a supervisory statement, SS319, in April 2019, highlighting expectations of the management of financial risks within insurers focusing on governance, risk management, scenario testing and disclosures. After the PRA reviewed certain insurers' plans to implement this towards the end of 2019 and indeed into 2020, we followed up with a Dear CEO letter in July 2020, highlighting areas of good practice that they've seen in the market, but also areas of concerns or development. The intention is that insurers will need to implement the requirements highlighted in SS319 by the end of 2021. So really, time is running out for firms to successfully identify these risks and build them into processes before this date. Over the four areas of that uh, regulation, we have seen the most progress in governance. Firms will need to ensure they have an appropriate governance structure in place to provide oversight and challenge of climate change risks. And an individual needs to hold the prescribed responsibility within the firm under SMNCR. Our PwC survey, which we've recently commissioned and will report on shortly, Um, noted that this is usually the chief risk officer, but actually we have seen some um, other roles being held. So, for example, the chief investment officer 
or indeed the CEO. On the other hand, scenario testing appears to be a real key challenge for insurers. Firms are required to understand the quantitative impact on climate change risks. So that's both from a transitional risk lens or the risk of transitioning to a low carbon economy, or indeed uh, for physical risks, which will worsen if we are unsuccessful transitioning to that low carbon economy. By their very nature, climate scenarios take longer to impact financial services companies and emerge, aside from the often quoted disorderly transition scenario. And collecting internal data has been challenging. Um, so indeed, in our survey, over 70% of respondents cited difficulties with forward-looking model approaches and data. That's interesting. And that scenario testing um, approach and some of the challenges there, does, does that have an impact on the Bank of England's recent uh, climate risk stress test that they announced in uh, June, well, which will be held in June 2021? What, what do those mean for insurers? Yeah, so, so it's fair to say, I mean, the previous uh, exercise in 2019, so LIST and GIST, uh, they were definitely investigative stress tests, um, really seeking to understand where the industry was in terms of their approach, uh, but also uh, the potential size of risk for UK financial services. In this exercise, the PRA provided a significant amount of detail on the stresses, um, particularly on the asset side, actually, there was lots of parameters in there in a very detailed way, which we may not be provided for the 2021 exercise. I think that Andrew Bailey is looking for the 2021 exercise to build on what's been done already. But also, you know, if you think about the timelines, that's happening at the end of next year, which is when the regulation really needs to be kind of built in. So it's it's firm sort of one chance to really use these models and data in anger. Andrew, Andrew Bailey recently had um, a speech on climate change, and there are a couple of key facts that I've pulled out, which I thought might be interesting. The exercise will explore three different climate scenarios. So my reading of that will be an orderly transition, a disorderly transition, and effectively a no action scenario. And they will test different combinations of physical and transitional risks over a 30 year period. They expect to use the exercise as a tool to size the risks faced in these scenarios and understand how different business models will be affected and how they respond. And that's really key, particularly for things like improving firms risk management practices. He also made it very clear um, around the use of capital and understanding capital. So he said, while it isn't a tool for sizing internal capital requirements and buffers, it will be something that will inform potential approaches. So, for example, do we need to include this in our internal model or do we indeed need to include it in the author? The, forward, the one thing I picked up around the forward looking nature of scenarios is that it needs to consider an evolving risk profile. For example, property-backed assets may seem relatively safe, but appear less so under a four-degree world due to increased severity of weather events. Another example is that assets that may look safe now may appear risky under the lens of a transition to a low-carbon economy. And vice versa, really. Traditional carbon-intense assets may appear to conflict against good climate risk management, but efforts to decarbonise by these firms and create green energy may actually create a safer and higher-returning asset. The last thing I want to comment on really on this was around the data challenges we previously referred to. Our survey noted that a mixture of qualitative and quantitative approaches were taken, with initial attempts being more focused on the former due to data um, insufficiency. Andrew Bailey stressed that an uncertainty, a lack of data is not an excuse and emphasised the need for quantitative analysis. I think that data challenge is something we see in so many areas of regulation nowadays. I mean, but more broadly, what, what, what challenges do insurers face from the implementation of the regulation? 
Yeah, so it creates quite a lot of challenges for insurers. In the interest of time, I'll, I'll just touch on three. So I guess the first one we've already sort of slightly touched on, which is modeling and data challenges. You know, I guess the skill set required to model these takes a blend of a number of areas. So actuarial risk modeling and, and also climate science. And firms will need to consider whether this is available internally or indeed they want to uh, look to source that in externally. It's not just the scenario testing while that's important. It also feeds into risk monitoring such that you can inform the board and senior management on their responsibilities. So therefore, getting the data is absolutely key for a number of areas. I guess the second point is around just having too much stuff on and the time available. The regulatory agenda, as you've already said, is packed with various developments um, and thinking about this alongside the broader environment of COVID-19 and also acquisitions and consolidation, which we're seeing in the insurance market. We've seen a number of firms set up programs and bodies and projects of work to be able to meet the requirements at the end of 2021. But with these competing uh, issues and requirements, um, we hope that firms are well set up to do it. I guess the final thing I'd like to reflect on is the breadth of impact of climate change across the business in the context of those timelines. With the complexity of an insurer and the inherent forward-looking nature it creates significant challenges in quantification. Um, so, for example, taking into account the impact of climate change on longevity risk in both unsuccessful and successful transitions. Furthermore, just a year to design and embed these changes across the four pillars we've discussed could be very challenging, particularly given the firm's own corporate calendar. So determining risk and scenario testing, implementing this into existing business planning processes, also processes, and various risk management refreshes alongside strategic input can involve a number of people across the business and key processes. So therefore, prioritization becomes absolutely key. I certainly know what you mean about there being too much stuff on the regulatory agenda at the moment, Rod. Uh, I guess my my view would be I've seen a number of, of initiatives by the regulator being perhaps delayed or deferred or, or no further work ongoing. That, that for me means that anything that's left on the regulator's agenda must be really serious. They must be really engaged with it. As you say, I mean, also there are interactions with other areas of regulations and rules. So in addition to assessing and managing climate risks, there's the whole ESG agenda as well, which is a really important part of that climate picture. Uh, and indeed, we had a really good podcast on that earlier this summer with a, a couple of key partners from PwC as well. Um, how have insurers managed to consider this alongside other initiatives such as ESG? It's a really interesting question, Andrew, I think. You know, most most firms would have started from a compliance perspective, um, so seeing new regulation and, and wanted to comply with that. But I think what this has done has actually led to much more interesting strategic conversations around the purpose of insurance companies and what they're intending to do in terms of ESG-related issues. So, you know, in my mind, solid climate change risk management and understanding is a, is a key complement to the successful consideration of ESG in, in an organisation. In the work that we're doing with our firms on initiatives such as TCFD reporting, um, climate change response creates a much more holistic consideration of ESG and not just compliance, but also driving value. You know, one thing I can point to, um, which is an emerging sort of thought leadership around how do customers become engaged with different products? You know, in the insurance industry, we struggle quite often to engage our customers, particularly at younger generations, with insurance products. 
studies have shown that younger generations are more engaged with buying ESG compliant products and they're more actually more incentivized to work for empl uh, employers with solid ESG strategies. So we see this in a number of insurers making public disclosures on becoming things like net zero, uh, a process that will make significant inroads into the climate crisis and it will take quite a while for insurers to implement. But also, actually, it will begin to draw together some of these other strategic threads that we're seeing in the market. Thanks, Rod. Uh, it's interesting. You brought up TCFD there, which, of course, is not just a UK initiative. And certainly in my world, we have the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, which is a European piece of, uh, of legislation that impacts firms as well. Uh, I guess that interaction uh, between UK and EU rules is, is one that firms are going to have to get their heads around uh, increasingly over coming months. And actually, that brings us quite nicely on to one piece of insurance legislation where the UK government itself is looking to make some changes to the regime now we've left the EU. So in October this year, the government issued a, a call for evidence seeking views on how to tailor Solvency 2 to the UK market. Anavan, can you just tell us about what the government's objectives were for making any changes to the, the UK version of that regime? Yes, Andrew, thank you. Yes, so uh, the Solvency 2 2020 review that the UK government has launched has three main uh, objectives that the government is trying to reach. Number one is to ensure that the UK remains an internationally competitive market for insurance uh, for the insurance industry where, without compromising policyholder protection and safety and soundness. And the second key objective that the government is trying to achieve is uh, to look at a way to create a prudential regime for insurers that better enables insurance firms in the UK to contribute to the government's objectives to provide long-term capital support across uh, and long-term capital support for growth across the UK and also to support the government's uh, climate uh, climate change objectives. And finally, I think the Solvency 2 review that the government has launched also has interaction with something that you discussed in your previous podcast about uh, allocation of responsibilities uh, in the future regulatory framework, uh, allocation between uh, the parliament, the treasury, and the financial services regulators. Thanks, Anurvan. Yes, uh, I mean, clearly there, there's a lot of issues there driving it. But what are actually the, the main changes that the UK is proposing to make to the regime then? So the, 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 the changes that the UK government is proposing, it covers uh, 10 different areas. So instead of running through all 10, what I'll do is I'll, I'll break it up, uh, sort of group them between life insurance, uh, other items that impact both general insurers and life insurers, and then look at competitiveness Competitiveness at the end. So let's start with life insurance. So the first major change that the UK government is proposing is change to the risk margin. And this is where the government has been concerned that a lot of longevity risk, especially uh, annuity writers, a lot of longevity risk has been reinsured offshore. So the government wants to change the risk margin uh, so that... Uh, uh, firms, UK firms are less incentivized to 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 uh, reinsure uh, longevity risk outside the UK, and also they want to look at ways to reduce the size and the volatility of the risk margin. Second is the matching adjustment for life insurers. Uh, here, the government is interested in looking at um, the eligibility of assets and liabilities that are included in the matching adjustment, and also look at how the matching adjustment can be changed to make it operate more optimally. 
such as, such as reviewing the approval process for matching adjustments. And then finally, uh, a unique feature for life insurers is the uh, uh, transitional, transitional provisions for technical provisions. So uh, this requires firms to maintain legacy systems. It's quite costly for firms to calculate this. So the government wants to make uh, their calculation of the transitional measures simpler and more cost-effective for UK insurers. Then quickly moving on uh, on some of the other aspects that impacts both life insurers and general insurers. Uh, one, uh, uh, one item is looking at the reporting requirements. So the government wants to uh, reduce the amount of regulatory reporting that is required by uh, insurance companies in the UK. This will also reduce, uh, expected to reduce the cost of regulatory compliance. Second, they are, uh, the government is interested in the uh, in, in reviewing the way the solvency capital ratios, solvency capital requirements for insurance companies are calculated. Currently, the mechanism for calculating is very formulaic. So the government is, inter is interested in uh, bringing in uh, more scope for applying supervisory judgment and also to make certain changes that will support the government's uh, climate change objectives. Beyond that, moving on to a couple of points specifically on competitiveness. So the government is, is proposing two changes. One is uh, reviewing branch capital requirements. So after Brexit, there's an expectation that the UK is likely to see more international branches being set up in the UK. So they want to look at how uh, the capital requirements from branches may be modified to make it an attractive destination for international insurers. And also looking at reducing the cap, uh, reducing the regulatory burden on new insurers. So reviewing whether there are any barriers to entry, creating a mobilization phase where newer firms have some latitude in the early years regarding their regulatory requirements, and then and then the full set of regulatory requirements sort of comes in in a more phased manner as uh, as the company grows in size. So uh, there, as I said, there are 10 things covering a huge range of uh, solvency to issues, uh, but this hopefully gives you an idea of some of the main highlights in the solvency to UK government solvency to review. Thanks, Anurvan. I mean, certainly it's a, it's a massive shopping list. I suppose I've, I've got two reflections on it. Firstly, I mean, slightly tongue in cheek. I mean, this is just a review. So do firms actually have to do anything at the moment? And, and what is the timeline for this? Because there are a lot of things on, 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 on that list. And then secondly, I suppose, thinking particularly about that, that competitiveness of the UK point, is there a risk that the EU develops its own rules uh, in a different way? So either uh, in response to the UK competitiveness point or just that it develops its sovereignty to rules um, as it would anyway, and therefore that there, there's an indirect influence on the UK rules that way? Yes, Andrew. So uh, let's, uh, let's first look at uh, the timelines. So the UK government's review of Solvency II, the consultation period closes on 19th February 2021. Then simultaneously, EOPA is, con EOPA is conducting a review of Solvency II, and it is expected that EOPA will publish its recommendation for proposed changes and submit those to the Commission, the European Commission, in at the end of 2020 or early 2021. 
So we have two sets of big ticket regulatory changes. And I think it is important for uh, the industry to keep in mind that some of the changes at the European level might still influence how uh, the, final, the final direction or the final uh, position that the UK takes on some of these changes. So one of the examples is the risk margin. As I mentioned, the UK government is looking at it. Europa is looking at it. So it'll be interesting to see if there's any sort of convergence. The next question, Andrew, that you asked is in terms of uh, these are reviews and timelines, When why should firms care? I think it's fair to say that some of the changes that are proposed, uh, if you look at, the, for example, the UK government's proposed changes, you know, changes to the risk margin, the matching adjustment, these are likely to have long-term business model, capital model, operating model impacts. So for example, uh, if uh, the risk margin is changed in a way that it makes, it makes it less attractive for firms to reinsure risk offshore, then this might this might impact investment strategies, uh, profitability, uh, profitability drivers, and how firms manage their overall insurance portfolio going forward. So although there is uh, the timeline uh, for the final changes to come in is probably still uh, a few years out, but given the nature of impact that these are likely to have across the insurers, uh, financial uh, statements, its operating models. I think it's important for firms to stay abreast of the changes and think about how some of these changes might impact them in the long term so they can continue to remain competitive in, in, in the insurance sector. And Rod, it feels to me that with your sort of wider hat on and a number of the issues you're talking to your clients about, is this all really aligned from a client perspective? Yeah, it's a really interesting um, conundrum to ponder on, really. So in reality, if you think about some of the key themes that we're seeing from a prudential perspective in insurance um, uh, and, and conduct, so operational resilience, solvency to review, climate change, liquidity, they're all about, you know, they're all about resilience and they're all about ensuring that uh, insurers understand their risk profile and can manage it ahead of time. So in, in in some ways, it, it sh they shouldn't really clash. I guess some reflections on on how they fit together. Really, you know, climate change is a risk driver, and it hits every part of your business. So, in theory, having a good understanding of your climate change risks should then feed very nicely into your operational resilience. So, if we think about some of the physical risk implications, you know, for example, if our data centers go down because they're on floodplains. The operational resilience framework gives you a tool to understand and monitor the operational implications of that. Similarly, actually, with SOMC2, you know, there are mechanisms in there and objectives around uh, solid risk management, understanding the risk profile, and then actually looking to understand the capital implications of that or what insurers need to hold to mitigate that risk. So, so in some respects, that's very joined up and climate change should then naturally feed into that process. I guess actually in some respects it doesn't quite fit and there still needs to be things to thought about so if we go back to capital you know andrew bailey said in his recent speech around this that uh you know that the the stress uh 2021 stress and scenario testing exercise is not looking to understand or set uh capital buffers capital in an insurer under the somsi capital requirement is based in a one in 200 year event over a year 
whereas actually climate change impacts and risks can emerge over 50, 100, 150 years. So there's a natural conflict between what insurers would hold as capital to mitigate against this risk and the nature of the risk itself. So in some respects, it should create, uh, there should be some harmony, I should say, between these regulatory regimes. In others, I guess it comes back to my earlier point around bandwidth. So you're going to have different people focusing on these areas, making sure they're joined up in a sort of um, harmonious way and being managed appropriately is going to be a real challenge for our clients. Thanks, Rod. I think I will take the harmonious approach as the positive uh, note to end on there. So, Rod and Ravan, thank you both very much for your time today and for a really interesting discussion. Um, it's great to hear about how climate issues and solvency to interact with that wider regulatory agenda, but it does seem like we're presenting quite a complex picture for firms. And to our listeners, I hope you found this episode helpful. Please do share this podcast with your colleagues and subscribe to future episodes, and I'll be back in the new year. Have a great Christmas break. Thank you.